welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're back in 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, and uh, we're getting now to a familiar but challenging part of John's teaching where he talks about loving the world. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Hear with me God's word. John challenges these believers. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's heart-searching word. May he have its way May it have its way with us this morning. Amen. You can, be, you can be seated. Well, as we get back into 1 John, uh, I've told you a lot about him. He's one of the great biblical success stories, and there are a lot of them in your New Testament. There are many inspiring believers whose stories are recorded there, the Apostle John being one. But there are also some what I would call flagrant failures in the spiritual life. There are some people whose lives are recorded in the Bible, sometimes in only short sentences, once or twice, and others in long, long sections who had great spiritual privilege, tremendous discipleship, massive exposure to the truth, fantastic mentoring, great opportunity, who, with all of that, failed spiritually, and they abandoned the things of God. If I were to ask you to name the two most flagrant spiritual failures in the New Testament, uh, there, there are a couple names that I would hope would come to mind. Probably the most famous would be Judas, yes, the betrayer of our Lord. In fact, Scripture marks him out in, in that way. But there's another whose name may not be that familiar to you because he's only spoken of in a few places in the New Testament, but uh, he's well known. His name was Demas. Demas was the deserter of the Apostle Paul. Demas had been with Paul for five years after he came to Christ, probably under Paul's ministry. But Demas, in the end, deserted Paul at the most urgent moment in Paul's life. You can read about Demas in a couple of different places in Paul's writings where he mentions Demas as a partner with him in ministry. Like I said, Demas was with Paul over about five years, the last five years of his ministry. And he was uh, associated not only with Paul, but with Timothy and very probably Luke. And so he had a chance to be discipled alongside Timothy by Paul. He had a chance to watch the seasoned spiritual life of someone like Dr. Luke. He was surrounded by spiritual example, and he got to listen 
to the Apostle Paul every day. What would that be like? One-on-one, free-flowing discipleship with the greatest biblical mind on the planet. He might have sat there and listened to Paul, who by that time, his eyesight was so, was so ravaged and his, his hands from the beatings and everything else that he wasn't able to write very clearly. And so he would dictate his later epistles and they would be written by someone listening to him. And it's possible that Demas even sat and listened to Paul dictate his great writings at some point. And of course, Demas had the privilege of being alongside Paul when Paul prayed. Can you imagine? All of that spiritually shaping experience. And yet when we read about Demas, in the end, you can read about him in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing in the dark, dark last days of his life. He's condemned to death. He knows death is coming. And he he writes to Timothy, his faithful disciple in the faith, who was at Ephesus, and Paul is writing to him from prison in Rome. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 9, Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, disappeared into that great pagan city to go back to sin, go back to living for himself, go back to living fully immersed in the world. He deserted Paul at Paul's worst hour and at the gospel's most dangerous hour. Demas in love with this present world. How could you do that? How could that happen? How could somebody with all of that spiritual experience, all of that biblical knowledge, all of that shaping, all of that discipleship turn at a a point where the one that loved him the most needed him the most, how could he leave? And the answer is right in the sentence in verse 10. He was in love with this present world. That has to be the reason. There had to be such a powerful pull in the world experience, the world system, that it, that it grasped a hold of Demas and he developed a, a more compelling love for the things in the world than he had for God and for Paul. And, and that, that compelling love won out and he gave into it. That's the only possible explanation we have from his life. So Demas must have underestimated the power of the world. That's the only explanation I have. With all of his spiritual training, it still hooked him and took him. And maybe you know people like that who had great Bible teaching, had good, good spiritual starts, and who had even ministries perhaps, and now today when you look for them, they're not here. They've deserted the faith. They've deserted their families perhaps. They've deserted the toughness of walking with God, and they're out in the world, and you don't even know where. They've vanished into their Thessalonica, and their, their testimony is gone. How do people do that? Well, they underestimate the power of the world, and it hooks them. Poor Demas needed to read 1 John chapter 2, although it wasn't written for about 20 to 25 years after he fell. But the principles were true. Oh, I wish he would have had it to read. Well, you do have it to read, and so do I, and we need to read this section of 1 John. And so we're going to go into it today. Challenging teaching, I will tell you, from my perspective. Before we dive into verses 15 to 17, let me give you a brief kind of overscope review of of the epistle since we've been out of it, since we went through our Christmas series and our New Year series. First John was written 
with one goal in mind. If you go to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, you can see it. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The, these Christians that John was writing to were being confused by false teachers who had moved into their church, as had so often been the case in the New Testament era. And these teachers were, were corrupting the gospel and causing these believers to be unsure as to whether they really knew the Lord because these teachers claimed that unless you had certain experiences, you really weren't connecting with God, certain mystical encounters, you really didn't know God. And if, if you weren't practicing certain aspects of discipline, you didn't know God. But they were confused also because these same false teachers were also living in the world. They, they, they taught that you can know God in your spirit, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can be a, a double-lifed person and, person, and there's no problem. And so these believers were getting confused, and, and John writes this to show them that, no, you can know that you have eternal life, and it's based on the truth of the gospel alone. And there are certain tasks that you can take. There's certain... Uh, Conditions you can apply to your life that will show whether the new life of Christ is really in you. And so the, the epistle, it's hard to outline, as I've told you, but it seems to rotate over and over and over again over three simple tests about whether you can know that you truly know Christ. The first is a doctrinal test. He goes back over this many times. Do you know the truth about Jesus? For example, we've already seen in chapter one that you have to know who Jesus really is. Chapter one, verse two, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. He said, we have, we've proclaimed to you the true Jesus. You know the true Jesus. We preach to you the true Jesus. Don't be lured away by a false Jesus. So there's a doctrinal test. Do you know the truth about Jesus Christ and the word of God? Second, he brought out a moral test. And he, he does that in the beginning of chapter two. And in verse four, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You can't live a double life as a believer. It's not just what you know, it's how you live. Are you living out the truth? No double lives allowed, unlike these false teachers. So that's the moral test. And then finally, he follows with a third test that he comes back to over and over again, and that's the relational test, or how are you treating God and others? Is your life filled with the love of God for other people? Chapter 2, verse 9 is an example. Whoever says he is in the light, oh, I know God, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. And so you see the three tests. Now, he, 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 goes, he goes through this over and over again, and then every once in a while he stops and he does a little encouraging piece because they're, they're taking a look at their lives and some of them may be concerned, am I Christian enough? And do I really know the Lord? And every once in a while he affirms them. And he says, you know, these false teachers can't pass these tests, but beloved, I know you can because I know you are children of God. That's why we looked last time in, the, in this epistle at first at chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he assures them, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he talks about the fact that if you keep going in the truth, one day you'll, get, you'll become young men in the faith, verse 13, and finally you'll become fathers who deeply know him. You have a great spiritual future ahead of you. So all of this is, is the, the, kind of the flow of the epistle. So he's given them these tests. Now he returns in verse 15 in our new text here, and he comes back to the moral test again. How are they living? 
Are you living to love the world or are you living to love God? Are you living for him? That's a sign that the truth, the truth has taken root and it's changing you. You're not just playing a game about God. So now that's the background. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about two things from the passage today. The power of the world, the real power the world system holds. And then secondly, I'm going to talk uh, about the real reasons why you can't become attached to it. It's all included in this passage. There are three hooks, by the way, that are obvious in this passage that I'm going to talk about as well. So let's go to the first major portion of what I want to talk about, the real power the world system holds. He says, do not love the world. The literal Greek is stop loving the world. Stop getting lured back into that old life you had. Stop being entranced with the world. That implies that it's a battle for every Christian, no matter how mature you are. It can hook you. So let me, let me just define some terms. First of all, world. What's he talking about there? I mean, that's an expansive word. And some people and some Christians have even taken this ultra seriously and they've separated themselves from society. They've become monastic. They've become communal. Is that what this is teaching? Is it saying, get away from everybody in the world that doesn't know Christ the way you do? No. The word world is cosmos in the Greek language, and it's used in three primary ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used to refer to planet Earth itself, the literal, the literal globe we live on. That's, uh, we, we sometimes use that word in our English, but that's, that, it could have been used in the Greek, but that is not the meaning here. It's also often used to refer to people in general. In John 3.16, you find cosmos. For God so loved the world, the the people in in the world around us. Well, you might think that's what's being talked about here, but that's not the meaning here either. Sometimes the word world is used to refer to an organized system of belief. Cosmos is what it meant, an organized or ordered system. And you've probably heard preachers tell you about this. We get our word cosmetic or cosmetology from it, the ordering of a person's look. And it meant the ordering of some, something. Here's one commentator put it this way. It means the organized evil system with its principles and its practices that we find in the world. That's interesting. The organized evil system with its principles and practices all under the authority of Satan, which includes all teachings, ideas, culture, hear that, attitudes, activities, etc., that are opposed to God. A big part of this world system is a fixation on the material over the spiritual and the promotion of self over others and pleasure over principle. Wow. The word world and cosmos here, he goes on, means everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. If you do a word study of the word world in 1 John, you're going to find it's connected to the words antichrist. And John develops this, and we're going to see this as we go through this epistle. That the spirit of the world is against Christ. And it's a philosophy. The world is not a place, it's a perspective. Remember that. We're not talking about physical space when we talk about the world. We're talking about a perspective. We're talking about a life principle that, that places man in the place of Christ. So when you look at it that way, you can understand that we're surrounded by it. 
It's the way the world lives without God. It's anti-Christ. Anti means against and in place of, and the answer to whether that's true of our world is both, yes. It is against Christ, and it places itself in the place of Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this, on this epistle, he says this, the idea here is of the world of people in rebellion against God, and therefore characterized by all that is in opposition to God, anti-Christ. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. Now, it's interesting if you trace the word through, he goes on. John says of this world that the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. The whole perspective that the world lives in is controlled by the enemy. In, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says the, the, this whole world system does not know Christ. And consequently, that it does not know and therefore also hates his followers. Jesus taught this extensively in the Gospel of John. So it is set against all that Christ wants for you, and it operates against all that Christ wants for it. So that's the world. It's a, it's a perspective. It's a rotating philosophy that's everywhere. It's empowered by the enemy. It's, it's a very powerful surrounding experience. We all live in it. So that's a definition of the word world. Now he says, don't love that system. Now, when you take out the word love, let's, let's, let's define that term. As you already know, I went through this before you with, with you a few weeks ago. There are different words in the Greek language for love. And, and uh, there's eros, which we get erotic from, and that would mean sexual love or, or you know, that, that kind of thing. And you would think that, 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 that might be what he's talking about here because the word lust is used in verse 16. The desires of the flesh, it can be translated lust, and it is in some of your Bibles. You think, well, is that what he's talking about? Is, is he just talking about don't get wrapped up in the sexual side of the world? No, that's not the word. Then there's phileo. We get Philadelphia or somebody got Philadelphia from it years ago. I'm not quite sure how that worked out, but it, phileo meant brotherly love or affection, relational love, kind, kind affection. You know, it's the kind of thing that, that comes to your mind when you're watching the, the playoffs and you see all these beer ads with all these people just having the time of their lives together and they're buds. It's, that's phileo. That's, that's the world's greatest experience of relationship is, you know, over a bud, being a bud with a bud, right? Is that, is that what he's saying? He's saying, don't build friendships with the world that go too far. Don't uh, get too affectionate toward it. No, that's not the word either. The third word is agape, or agapao is the verbal form. That's the one that we're the least familiar with. And that is the word that is actually used here. Now you say, if you've heard some teaching on this, you might be surprised because you, you might say, Pastor, I thought agape was the word for how God loves us. You're right. It's the word that talks about a love of being greatly committed to something of high value. It's also the word that's used when it's called in the New Testament for us to love God, to be greatly committed to something of high value. And yet here it is in this case, and it says, don't be greatly committed to the world and think it's of something of high value. You could also put it in this way. Don't love the world like you're supposed to love God. 
It's a love that comes when you put a high value on something. It's, it's a love that, that's just remarkably committed. This really struck me when I, when I studied it. One Greek expert I looked at this week says, the verb here, agapao, means to love, and, and it's in its highest, most pure form, speaks of the unconditional, sacrificial love, which God himself expresses toward undeserving sinful men. But I hooked on that word sacrificial. This commentator went on, he said, this quality of love in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, talks about prizing the world, being committed to the world thinking that things in the world are precious enough that you will sacrifice yourself for them and be committed to them. That really opened my eyes because there have been times in my life as I was growing up, that was the philosophy of my world. There are, the, the world is everything. You are a materialist completely and totally. There is no God. There is no spiritual life. There are no values that come from anyone else. The material world, what you can get from it and what you can achieve in it is the sum total of reality. Get it while you can and sacrifice everything you can to get more of it. And if you can, get more of it than the one around you for that sense of superiority. And I realized that was the ethic in which I was raised. But I look at our world today, and that's the ethic that we're living in. Because the world and all, of its, all that it has to offer is enough for people to sacrifice their lives, their families, their marriages, their health, whatever, to get it. So it just stunned me that agape is used in that phrase. Don't love the world like you're supposed to love God. Don't love it by putting a high prize on it. Don't love it unconditionally without, without any understanding. Don't love it sacrificially to where you sacrifice what God has given you to get what it will give you. Wow, there was a lot there. I put it in this phrase. Loving the world is the sin of allowing your appetites, ambitions, and conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values. So this goes a lot farther than just sex. It goes a lot farther than just materialism. This goes to everything that the world pulses over that, that it calls important, everything it puts in the place of God. I repeat it. Loving the world is the sin of allowing your appetites, ambitions, and conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values, to love the world like you ought to love God. That's where it, it struck me, and that's how I put it in words from my own discipleship. That's what happened to Demas. He got to a point where the calculation changed, where the value shifted, where he began to prize something more than the Lord, prize something more than loving Paul and supporting his ministry, prize something more than the gospel. He became hooked and attracted, and he began to take the love for God that he was cultivating, and he placed it into a love for the world, and he went after it. He deserted his first love. I'll tell you right now, if it could happen to Demas, with all that spiritual privilege, it could happen to me. It could happen to you. And we're vulnerable like he was, but we're especially vulnerable to three pathways that can pull us away. I, I mentioned they're hooks that are designed by the enemy and that are present in the world, and you see them developed in verse 16. Stop loving the world, verse 15. Don't be committed to it in the place of the Lord. Verse 16, 4, he explains how this happens. He's warning them. For all that is in the world. Notice that phrase, 
the whole world philosophy today, whether it's noble and philosophical and admirable and poetic, or whether it's base and ugly and drug addicted and abusive and everything in between, nice world, evil world, respectable world, ugly world, rich world, poor world, wise world, stupid world, addicted world, disciplined world, political world, educational world. I don't care what part of the world you want to talk about. You will not find anything in it that is not driven by these three things. What? Think about your experience with it. There's the desires of the flesh. There's the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions. I think a better translation is the boastful pride of life. Those are three pathways that the whole world system ultimately revolves around. The world, all that is in the world. So what are these three things? Well, what's lust of the flesh all about? And you might think, well, I know that one. It's pretty easy. Just crazy. You're going, going out of your mind centrally and getting involved in, in all kinds of sexual aspects. I mean, it says desires, and my Bible says lust. Well, you might have a point, but there's more. I agree. In fact, the Greek word, don't take this too far, but it, it means to be hot after something. I don't want to say that in church, but... That's it. So, so it definitely does refer to going outside the boundaries of a proper sexual relationship in marriage or before marriage. And yeah, sex is there, but it's interesting. The word flesh is not just the physical sense. I think flesh is used here the way the Bible uses it in many different places to refer to every desire you have outside of the will of God. Every desire you have outside of the will of God. One commentator put it this way, desires of the flesh describes what it means to live life dominated by the senses. In the extreme, it would include slavish pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, sexuality, selfish in the use of possessions, extravagant in the gratification of material desires. The desires of the flesh include all desires centered in your nature without regard to the will of God. I just said that. It's whatever you are driven to have, do, or experience that is outside of the will of God. That could be something that looks good, but if it's not what God wants, it's, it's a desire driven by your flesh, by your human nature. The desires of the flesh, he writes, includes all desires centered in your nature without regard to the will of God. It is that which constantly fights against the things of God in your life. Now, where do you see the, 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 the desires of the flesh laid out? Well, if you take a look at your Bibles, you can find the most extensive listing of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to this church in the midst of a a huge secular society, pushing all kinds of values on it. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now, most people, when they think of the flesh, they would just read read verse 19 and stop there. Sexual immorality leads the list, as you can can imagine, because that's the ultimate expression of you pressing yourself onto uh, onto something that you want. Impurity, sensuality. We think, okay, that's the works of the flesh. But there's more. Look what he, he goes on. Idolatry, sorcery, which was probably related to drug use at the time. Enmity, strife jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Wait a minute. 
Those kind of things, they don't happen in some squalid place where people get involved in sexual sin. Those things happen at your office, don't they? They've happened at every office I've been in, every workplace I've ever been. Those things happen in families. Every family I've ever known has struggled with some of these things, strife and jealousy and anger and, anger and rivalries. That's the flesh too, you bet. It's any desire that you can't fulfill in the will of God. Anything. It goes on to verse 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a warning. So it's more than just, it's more than just sensual. It's, it's the drive that you have to be in the place of God. It's the drive that you have to be satisfied in everything, whether it's some kind of relationship or some kind of career or some kind of, of uh, issue that you have with someone, or maybe it's, it's sorcery or, or drunkenness. Maybe it's the desire to feel good in a world of pain. And you're saying, you just don't understand what I live with. I'm justified to have this little part of my life where I self-medicate because you just don't understand the world I live in and what I'm dealing with. Oh, yes, I do. And so does God. And when you're getting involved in that, you need to get some help and some discipleship because you're living outside the will of God. And trust me, you're fulfilling a desire of the flesh. But I have to do this emotionally to get through my day. You're going to have to find a way in the will of God to walk out of that and begin to live with him by faith because that will destroy your life. So you see, the world shows up through the entirety of that list. So lust of the flesh, here's one word I would use to describe it. It's being driven by sensation, the desire to feel relief, the desire to feel superior, the desire to feel good, the desire to, to not to feel the difficulties of life will lead you into all kinds of stuff. That's a lust of the flesh. Now he goes to the lust of the eyes, the desire of the eyes. Back to 1 John. What's that? Well, it has to do with desiring what you see and you don't have and grasping for it outside the will of God. It can, it can involve a relationship. It can involve sexuality. It can involve a possession. It can involve a position. David fell into the desire of the eyes when he was walking on a rooftop one evening and he saw a woman bathing in a rooftop nearby David, a man who possessed everything and who had multiple relationships, he saw something he didn't yet have. Desire of the eyes hooked him, ruined his life, ruined her life. Solomon, his son, committed the same sin, but he also uh, saw, he saw, he saw lands that he didn't yet possess and gold that he didn't yet have, and he impoverished Israel to go pursue it. The lust of the eyes drove him into ultimate ruin. 
How does that affect us today? Whenever you see something that you don't have and it begins to alter your directional system in your life and your value system in your life and the efforts in your life to where you go outside the will of God to get it, maybe you're getting hooked by the lust of the eyes, by the desire of the eyes. I don't know what it might be for you. It might be a certain promotion or position in your working world. It might be a vacation that so-and-so took that you've just got to have, even though it's, it's going to take your credit cards and run, run them up to the max. It might be a, a toy that you, that, that you just have, or, or maybe you're a collector of toys. God help us. You know, whether they go bang or they go, they go this way, whatever it is. Now I'm really getting some enemies. Whatever it might be, if you know that it's just not what the will, what the will of God has for you, think about it. They, these are not sinful in themselves, but in our materialistic society, they're all around us. I've known people that have ruined parts of their lives financially or maritally because they, they see more of what they, they don't have and they convince themselves that they have to do it in order to have value. So if the lust of the flesh is about sensation, the lust of the eyes is about possession. God help us, we're surrounded by an acquisition society that's built dissatisfaction into everything. And then finally, pride and possessions. I think the better translation is the boastful pride of life. I've seen that in different... This doesn't have to do just with possessions. It has to do with position. The Greek word meant an arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency and an empty bragger. This had to do with how you look to others. It had to do with the impression you make on people. It had to do with your position in society and the impression that others had of you. This has to do with arrogance and pride. It has to do with self-sufficiency, a desire maybe to have a life that God hasn't given you and battling to get it. It's an arrogant sense of achievement And a lot of times the Greek words means you're a bragger, but you're empty. In other words, you even put on appearances to look like you more than you are. You talk about things you've done, but maybe not done to sound like you're more than you are. You you get involved in this endless cycle of what I would call impression. So lust of the flesh is sensation. Lust of the eyes is possession. And lust of the boastful pride or the pride in possessions is impression. I wrote all these things down and I paused and I thought, man, that is a very long first point. (laughs) Then I wrote, it's a very painful first point. I wanted to get through that because that's where I've lived at different times in my life. It's what I battle all the time. It's what you battle all the time, especially in a society like ours that was filled with endless option. But you see, they were a cosmopolitan society. They were living with all the options surrounding them and their level of development as a society, just like we are today. And he say, you guys, you need, to, you need to wake up. You need to stop letting the world creep into your passions. So we've been warned Verse 16. But there are two reasons that he gives just from a spiritual point of view. 
He says all these things, the, lust of the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let's go back through this because he buries two big reasons in his warnings. Go back to verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's scary. There's been a lot of debate about what this means. Does it mean that anybody that's tempted to love the world that's fallen in love with the world is not saved? That's one point of view. Well, it depends on how you look at the Greek language and other things. Walter Burdick, a Greek scholar, pointed out this. Now, this is going to get a little technical for you, but it's just to impress you. Um, he says, it may refer in the Greek here to love that comes from the Father. That's an ablative of, of source for you Greek scholars. In other words, you're not loved by God. Mm. It may refer to the Father's love for the person involved. That's a subjective genitive, same thing same idea that, that the love of God is not upon your life. Or it may speak of the person's love for the Father. That's called an objective genitive. In other words, he's saying, if you're loving the world, you're not loving God. You've let the, world, the love of the world take the place of your love for God. He goes on, considering the context in which John is commanding individuals not to love the world, the most natural intent would be that if they are loving the world, they cannot harbor love for God for God the Father in their hearts. In other words, it's taken away your love for God. You've misplaced it in the world. It's taking his place. That's a dangerous place to be. Now, Jesus actually kind of touched on this. I don't think in the same, in quite the same way, but in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one, and the Greek is very strong there, absolutely no one, can serve, which means bow to and submit your will to, two masters. Do you remember that? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. And then he hones it down to wealth. No one can serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Material possessions. So Jesus there talks about the fact, well, here's how I would put it in words. You were not designed to love God and the world at the same time. You just were not. God does not, did not design you that way. You were designed as an image bearer Adam and Eve were designed as image bearers to, to reflect love to God and God alone. I'm glad that the Lord designed me that way because it means that uh, if I'm truly his, I can't be completely seduced. I'm going to be pulled by the Holy Spirit within me to come back to him, to give him my love again. Now, if you're a believer, and at some point your values have gotten shifted in a work situation or a money situation, some area of your life, and you know that, that you, you've been living in a place where you're starting to love certain parts of the world a lot more than you love God, um, you're going to know that the Lord is going to draw you back. He's going to chasten you. He's going to cause you to be so convicted and dissatisfied. Well, you know, how do I know that? It's because I've tried it multiple times in my life. 
multiple seasons in my life. I tried it, and I was miserable. And the Lord drew me back to surrender. If you have to... if <laughs> That's just the way it is, Christian. You know, he says he's a jealous God. Thank God. He draws us back. But my better advice is, don't test that out. Don't test that out. You were not designed to love God and the world at the same time. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a, it's a tension that you can get trapped in. For Demas, he let the throw weight of that love for the world overcome. Was Demas a believer or not? We don't know. But the last signature point of his life in the New Testament was that he had deserted Paul. Here's the second thing, second reason. Not only were you not designed to love God and the world at the same time, the second reason you can't become attached to the world, you just don't want to do it, is that you can waste your life trying. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All this stuff that is pushed upon us in our society, all these arguments about how you're wasting your life living for Christ and you're running out of time to live for yourself, achieve for yourself, all the appetites that the world screams at you to satisfy, all the experiences it, it holds out to you to have, all the sensations it tempts you to, to, to get into, all the, the commitments it wants you to break, all the relationships it says for you to abandon. All that stuff is passing away. It's, it'll be gone before you know it. And sometimes if you've been involved in the experiences of it, it's gone while you're in it. It's interesting, the, the phrase pass away, passing away here is from a Greek word, paragetai. And in the first century, the Greeks used it and the Romans to talk about the theater of the day. It's interesting. At the conclusion of a scene on stage in the theaters of that time, the curtain would come down. And then the props would be picked up and moved off stage. The curtain would be down and you could hear all the props that you'd, from the scene you'd just enjoyed being trundled off stage. Maybe you've had that experience when you go to plays today. It's the same thing. So the curtain would come down at the end of the scene and the props would be picked up and moved off stage in preparation for the next scene. New props would quickly be brought on stage. And John's point is that the world system opposed to God is like a scene in a play. When the scene comes to an end, the curtain falls and the props are removed. That's what's going to happen to this world. One day, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to say, scene. He'll drop the curtain and all the baubles and all the pride of this world. We props taken away from the backstage. If you're living for the world, you're acting out the precious gift of your life on the wrong stage. <laughs> God's not interested in that. 
He's called you to live for Christ on the great stage of his kingdom and his plan and to make the great passion of your life not to be somebody but to know somebody. David Allen in his commentary, and I close with this. He, uh, he said, when you think about it, what really lasts forever? The knowledge of today will be the ignorance of tomorrow. Isn't that true? If Aristotle, Galileo, or Isaac Newton were alive today, they'd have to go back to school again. <laughs> have to de-learn all the stuff they thought and deeply learn all the stuff that's happened. Once it took a century to thrust the most brilliant discoveries under the dust heap of historical oblivion. Now a single decade or even a year will do it. Actually, just another version will do it. Isn't that true? All that we're entranced in. Do you remember when, when, uh, when the cell phone came out, some of you guys? How excited you were to buy that stupid block with the antenna that came out of it? to spend all that money. And then what happened? Well, they came up with one that folded. And you spent all that money. I remember that. I had my folding phone. I was so excited. But then somebody walked by and we had something on their hip called a, called a Blackberry. I thought you could run the world with that thing. I spent the money on the Blackberry. I was so proud of that thing. Made sure that people would see it. You know, just... Oh, just a second. Nothing lasts. What you know, what you acquire, and what you achieve will never last. Only God, his kingdom, and those who are rightly related to him will never fade throughout eternity. The world is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. <laughs> 